Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and today I'm doing a special episode about The Pharmacist on Netflix. I think most of us have probably seen the trailer or seen Netflix pop it up in our feeds as one of their new uh, latest crime documentaries. And I think it's an important topic that I actually wanted to talk about today because the trailer blew up all over social media amongst pharmacy friends and even non-pharmacy friends. I've had numerous non-pharmacists reach out to me about the series both before and after it came out to see what I thought and if it was real, if I, this was things I saw or dealt with on a daily basis. And you know, most of them were even amazed that this was a thing that really happens or actually did happen upwards of 20 years ago now. Well, I watched it, obviously. In fact, I watched it twice. First time for entertainment, second time to be a good pharmacist and double-check everything that I watched the first time. And I have to say, you know, here's here's some of my thoughts and kind of some background on it. There are spoilers in here, so if you have not watched it yet, please don't listen to this podcast. If you have watched it, please go ahead and keep listening. First, it's rated 8.0 on IMDb, which is a pretty high score. That's as high as some of your uh, award-winning shows that have won various uh, awards from Netflix on there, at least in that realm. And I have to say it would be higher. In fact, it should be higher. But some of the bad reviews were that it took too long, it was a little drawn out, they could have shortened it up. Uh, The pharmacist had a God complex, one commenter said. I know many of my retail pharmacists have heard this before when we deny to fill controlled substance for patients when really we're just doing our due diligence and our job. One comment actually said this film is malarkey and the real problem is under-prescribing of opioids over the last decade because of what Purdue did in this claim they settled in 2007. I actually disagree completely and wholeheartedly with every one of those comments on there. And if you take those out, I didn't do any rough math or anything, but the film would probably score upwards of a 9 then from what I was seeing on IMDb, which is even a higher score after it already scored an impressive 8. So to give you kind of some background, it is a well-done show. All right, so here I'm going to go through numerically the kind of the points I had with it here. First point, this is the overwhelming thing and theme of the show. Dan Schneider is now a legend amongst pharmacists, and I think he's a hero. I really think that this guy did everything he could to try and do what's the right thing and fight the right battle to help get these uh, opioids off the streets. I know he questions himself later on saying, did he do the right thing as people moved on to heroin? I think he did because, as we now know, prescription opioids are really a gateway drug for addiction for people. Purdue hid how powerful they were. If you want some more in-depth about Purdue, the Sacklers, and my other thoughts on it, please refer to my episode one and two where we covered opioids and the lawsuits that's going on and starting to wrap up with some of that. But I, honestly, I feel for Dan, his wife, his family, the trauma they go through losing their son the way they did, that's awful. As a new parent myself, I really hope that nobody has to go through that ever. Obviously, people will, and it's, I, I feel for them. That's just got to be absolutely heartbreaking on every, every level. But I think that, that that happening to Dan, as he said, was what set him on this path and gave him more of a mission to his life. And I'm not going to say it's a good thing, but if that was what he needed to do to cope with his son was to help try and stop overprescribing of addictive medications, I think that's a good cause and a good way to kind of put a spin on some negative thing to try and help some people out. Dan's actions really show that any pharmacist can do this with some persistence, of course. You don't have to be a pharmacy manager. You don't have to be a pharmacy owner. You don't have to be some higher up. Any pharmacist who's passionate about really doing their job 
kind of should take some notes from Dan's actions and what he did. I don't think that we should necessarily be driving up to midnight clinics that doctors are hosting to prescribe medications for people. But if we see some shady practices or some things that we think are unethical, we should really bring those up to the DEA and FBI, whoever we can, state board agencies, and not just once or twice, but stay persistent on it, especially if we see it, just because what is going on with some of these things still to this day is not exactly what I would call uh, ethical prescribing. I really feel for pharmacists that this should be the take-homes. Any pharmacist can do what Dan did, or at least try and follow in those shoes to help when it comes to overprescribing of medications. Like I said, the one comment I said there wasn't underprescribing of opioids, and I can see where people who are, you know, legit people with pain, cancer patients, and what have you, do have some issues with getting their medications. I have seen that before. I've seen patients with sickle cell have issues with it, and part of it is the segmented healthcare system we have. Whereas pharmacists, we don't see the full picture sometimes with the electronic medical records charts. And that is why we have to do, we have to call and things like that. If anything, those should be the patients who are pushing for more of a universal healthcare database that we can help see more what their diagnosis is, their past chronic histories are, instead of seeing them pharmacy hopping, see denials and things of that nature. That would also help with some of the prioritization process so that we've seen with opioids when it comes to cancer patients, dose limits, day supply limits, and things of that nature. Personally, I've been in Dan's shoes before from the pharmacy side of things, and I know it's tough because a lot of times, especially when you're seeing those high volumes, you start questioning, is this legit? Is this maybe a specialist that is getting referred to? But he did point out some things in there that, hey, like all these doses were the same. There's a pattern to it. And what he was seeing from the patients, even when he was asking them questions, some people said he was interrogating them. No, he was counseling them and trying to make sure they were dosed appropriately for their medication. So he was doing the right thing there. I can see where maybe some of his tone came off the wrong way, but everyone's got their own, has their own way of parlaying that to people. And that just depends on the patient who you're dealing with. Some people like his way and how kind of direct he was. Other people go more around the bush with it. Either way, I think that he did a great job there. This really shows me why some of the New York Times article and some of the metrics things have been hitting the news recently. This just shows why metrics and sales should not be how pharmacies are measured or compensated. I know that you shouldn't be able to open a pharmacy on one script a day. But at the same time, we should be compensated for maybe like de-prescribing and things like that. As I talked about previously with Sue Paul, especially when it comes to things like opioids, if we can help kind of ramp down some of the abuses or overuses of it, and that's a good thing. And you see Dan do that in the episode. You see him talk about, hey, you know, if you keep taking this, it's not going to be enough one day. You're going to need more and more and more. And there's nothing stronger than this. I thought that when he said that, I'm like, wow, he put that in a layman's terms, exactly what they needed to hear whether they wanted to hear it or not is another story, but he did a very good job with some of his counseling points and making them relay to the average patient who comes in our doors. And I think the crazy thing is, is we always like to kind of promote, hey, we're all doctors now, we have PharmDs. Dan was an old school RPH guy who just had his bachelor's and he it really shows he can connect with people, at least on like, like his basic communication skills. And I think that's a very underrated skill that many people are seen lacking today a little bit that some of the old school pharmacists like Dan really, really, really are successful at. Uh, Number two, Louisiana was not the hardest hit part of the country with this epidemic. I don't know about specifically that ward or that parish in Louisiana, but just in general, Louisiana was not hit nearly as hard as like Appalachia, some of those more rural parts of my home state of Ohio. And I'm not downplaying what they saw at all. I know that Katrina played a huge part in this with being a very blue collar town and having a lot of the physical labor they needed and probably some of the traumatic stuff they went through with losing their house, losing their families, losing everything that they had ever accumulated or dreamed of. That is not to be understated in this at all, but I do wish that Netflix would have incorporated at least a few more episodes on this and kind of shown that, hey, here's Louisiana, here's some other states that were also equally hit, just to kind of get a better picture that this wasn't just a one-off that happened in one city. 
But I do think that they showed a map of that in the, the series that kind of showed that this was widespread. So they did draw some attention to it. I just think it could have done maybe a little bit of better of that. I really hope Netflix makes a follow-up to this, considering that this was a pretty cheap one for them to make from what I saw on IMDb. It cost them around $3 million, and this was a huge hit. I hope they make another documentary that kind of focuses on maybe those rural Kentucky, rural Virginia, rural Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio area, all that Appalachia that was really ravaged by this too. This show, uh, The Pharmacist, really shows just how hard it is to do the right thing when reporting medical crimes or misdeeds in a state, and especially to medical boards. Dan reported this multiple, multiple, multiple times and kept following up. His persistence is what led to this doctor obviously losing her license. She might have lost it eventually, but at the same time, it would have taken much longer. And Dan's documentation on this was just second to none. I know I've had to report the medical boards myself. I probably reported about a dozen or so prescribers or offices, the state board, for bad prescribing habits, things I thought were either outside the law or knew were outside the law in just my time as a pharmacist. And it's gotten a lot better. There's less now, but that's still roughly one year since I've been out. And some of them were known by law enforcement. So a lot of times when I called, I was just adding to a case that was already open and that has helped shut down some prescriber offices at times. And I think that's key too. And you think of yourself as a pharmacist, it's not you against the system. What it, They really painted it like with Dan in this case. But if more pharmacists or more healthcare professionals were reporting what they saw, it's an accumulation factor. If all of a sudden we had 15, 20 pharmacies and then some other nurse practitioners calling about prescribing habits they saw from prescribers like Dr. Cleggett in this film, this probably would have happened a lot quicker with a lot more documentation. That's just my two cents on this. But again, that's one thing I always want to share with some of the listeners here is make sure that if you feel strongly about something or you know it's wrong, stand up for it, be heard. I think Dan did a great job of that, but you won't be alone in this. Again, he was working with a lot of people, a lot of state agencies with this. They didn't show any other pharmacists get involved, which I thought was a little weird. I'm sure there were some other calls that were made to the state boards, but maybe I'm wrong with that. Kind of going on just to kind of share some of my stories a little bit with some of this. I know I had a similar... Anyway, I'm not going to say it's similar, but a smaller version of what Dan did where I actually reported somebody who I knew was abusing Adderall that I caught via prescription drug monitoring program, which was something that Dan was advocating for with the state all the way back in, it looked like 2001, 2002. And my state of Ohio didn't get to 2006. Once that came out and we started, they, once they mandated use of that, you saw a lot more of these kind of practices and clinicians dry up with the way of overprescribing some things like this. It could have just been good timing. It could have been cultural sensitivity, whatever it was. But I really think the prescription drug monitoring programs were great for this and shows what we can do as pharmacists when we're given access to the full load of information that's out there. But I, with that kind of digressing for a second, I was actually able to recognize that the person was drug shopping. And kind of like Dan, there's there one word for me or one trigger moment that made me know this wasn't a legit. For Dan in the movie, they, I believe it was Dr. Clegg had told him, who, pardon the French here, but who the fuck made you a doctor? I thought that was pretty interesting considering that I can see why that set him off. And again, pardon the, for the vulgarities, but that was what the term was actually used in the show. For me, I had a similar moment where I had busted this person and refused them to give them their prescription back for what I was sure was abuse or overuse or possibly even selling it. The person said, I'll just get another one. I'm a doctor, you know, and then walked away. Well, when I contacted the state DEA, gave them all the information I could, they came and got hard copies, and then they looked in the prescription drug monitoring program, they actually called me, sent me an email of a picture of the person who was who was at my counter who actually happened to be a physician. They were a fellow at a local hospital. When they dug deeper into it, of some of who the people were prescribing for him, they found that they were actually residents under him as well. And then I don't know the exact story because I never heard was called to testify of this, but I do know that a bunch of those residents and fellows 
who were in the uh, psych department at that hospital did lose their license, get suspended, or get action taken against them by state medical boards and the DEA. So, again, I, this is nothing like what Dan did, but something I have experienced in the past in working with state agencies, and I'm just a regular pharmacist that you see behind the counter. I'm not, I don't wear a cape or anything crazy like that. I'm not on the, the path that Dan is to help redeem a, a lost loved one or anything like that or a lost child. But it is something that, you know, as an average pharmacist, you can do and you can help stop some of these practices. So something that you definitely have to speak up with. It's huge, it's important, and it's something that's absolutely essential to our profession. One other thing I want to comment on is I don't know why the state medical boards are so protective of some of their prescribers. I feel like as a, some of the pharmacy boards aren't always as protective, and I feel like it's a little bit they play a little bit different role with that. They more protect the public and not us, but help kind of regulate us, whereas I feel very differently with the state medical boards that they have the exact opposite role of protecting their prescribers. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just where I am. Maybe it's just my opinion that is completely not correct, but that's just something I know I've seen. I've heard other pharmacists echo those sentiments as well, not just in my state. I think there's a lot of irony there because that helps prescribers like Dr. Cleggett in the show take seemingly years to get busted, as we saw in this film, right? This didn't happen overnight. This didn't happen in a week. And there was a lot of drama that went on with it. So this is something I would love to see us improve upon in all states. And I understand that we need physicians and we need other practitioners so that we can provide people better and easier access to healthcare. But at the same time, as when we have unethical and misprescribing and other dubious deeds like this, we really need to be able to put the kibosh on it pretty quick. Why, again, the FBI and the DEA did not notify the state medical board in this film, or it took so long for them to do so and reach out to them, I don't know. That has not been something I've seen when I've contacted DEA agents. They work pretty quick with that stuff. But I thought that was pretty interesting in this film and not always the norm from what I've seen. But again, I'm sure it happens because, as they did state in there, they're understaffed, they're underfunded for what they're up against with some of the stuff and how fast these practices can open, move, change names, what have you. Uh, fourth thing I thought of was, I can't believe how local law enforcement was in on this. This is probably a one-off. I, I don't know if this was happening all across the country. Uh, I've had heard a DEA agent tell me about organized crime that was once in a doctor's office in Florida that was causing them to crank out a ton of prescriptions and basically using the doctor's office as a front so they could make money. But I have not seen where local law enforcement was actually involved in this before. I could be wrong. I'm sure there's probably one other place in America where this was going on. I just couldn't believe that they were protecting his office and then knowing what was going on, being in the office and basically in cahoots with Dr. Cleggett and all this, it really just shows you how much money can corrupt people with things like this and why we need to hold ourselves and all of our medical professionals to high moral and ethical standards. One point that I actually loved in this, the drug rep. I think his name was Chris Davis. He was the drug rep for Purdue Pharma, and he knocked it out of the park when it came to what he was saying about them. He realized Purdue was selling lies about addiction. Uh, his quote was, you know, that this is less addictive. But the context is less addictive than what? Heroin? Is this less addictive than meth? I mean, he didn't say that, but it was kind of like insinuated with what he said. He knew that Purdue was flooding the market with it. As he said, the drug rep in the area next to him, the parish next to him, which is where I believe Dr. Cleggett was, was making $800,000 a year because of the high volume of opioids that were sold just in that area. Again, I don't know if this is the worst small area in the country. I don't think it is from what I saw on a previous Washington Post article that broke it down. I could be wrong. But that just shows how much money was involved in this. Purdue was making money. The drug reps were making money. The doctor was making money. There's easily millions coming out of this one office for everybody involved in this, which is pretty crazy to think of just to feed essentially what's legal, legal drug dealing and the reckless prescribing of stuff like Oxycontin. I wish they did like two more episodes just on what Purdue did and how, the, how they made money and kind of some of their tactics. 
there's been a lot of case reporting from various articles, whether it be the New York Times or other media outlets on kind of the Sacklers and some of the crimes that they've had when it comes to pushing Oxycontin. I know there's a case going on in the state of Massachusetts. Then there's also the one that's here in my backyard in the Cleveland for the federal courts. There was combined a ton of cases. I think these are going to be pretty, pretty interesting to see how they all fall out. I think Oklahoma did settle theirs for less than considerably less than what I thought it should have been. But this lawsuit's going to settle for well into the tens of billions of billions of dollars with a B. All right, sixth thing I saw here, Dr. Cleggett didn't get what she deserved. By doing what she did, she really got off, I don't want to say scot-free, but got off extremely light. I know I should probably feel more sorry for her considering the car accident and injuries, which I thought was really well-timed. I don't know why, but that just raised my suspicion a little bit more. She was clearly money-hungry. And getting paid just that much cash obviously just led to her corruption. She felt the money, felt the power, and just let it get to her head and obviously let it all of her scruples go just to keep making that extra dollar. They even tried to pay the guy who was fixing their copier with a prescription of Oxycontin. If that's not corrupt, I don't know what is. I think that's that one was really a part that blew me away. I couldn't believe that. And that the guy also knew Dan just kind of made it go, go full circle there. I personally think she should be in jail for life, given the, how many people she probably caused to OD the harm she did to them, the addiction she caused, all of those things. If you look back at it, you can probably tie a manslaughter homicide case. I'm not sure. I'm not a a legal expert, but one of those to her from what she did with her prescribing habits of just Oxycontin and then also to put in the other drugs that she did too to even feed the addiction more. She should be in jail for life. I have no question about that in my mind. But again, I wasn't a juror, and I know she pleaded out with some of that. She knew it wasn't right, and she was just doing whatever she could to make more money. One thing I want to point out, too, and why I think that she should be in jail for this long is that prescribers take a Hippocratic oath. And in that, it says, I will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free. That alone, she violated. And that's one of the cores to the Hippocratic oath. I know people think it means do no harm. That's essentially what this means. But because she did that and it was there was intent, there was knowledge, she was complicit with it, she did however many other crimes just to make sure that she kept her cash flow coming in, whether it be hiring people to chase Dan down in the car, which I thought was a little crazy and why we should definitely not go knocking on some of these doors if we see shady prescribers or shady pharmacies for that matter. But I really do feel like that's why she, on top of getting her license taken away, should be actually in, in jail for life. Pharmacists also do have an oath to follow, just to kind of throw this out there. And this is what one I always fall back on when it comes to making sure that you're holding prescribers accountable and making sure you're doing the right thing. And part of that is I will hold myself and my colleagues to the highest principles of our profession's moral, ethical, and legal conduct. And this is why we have to make sure that not just, you know, other uh, other prescribers like Dr. Cleggett's, but Dan even reached out to his pharmacy manager because, remember, he was just a staff pharmacist or the pharmacy owner in his case and was pushing back on why they're filling so much and was told, just keep filling, just keep filling. Dan executed this as well as any pharmacist I've ever seen. He kept raising alerts. He kept being that voice for himself and for his patients and for the area and for pharmacy. I cannot compliment him enough on how well he did this. Any prescriber who questions a pharmacist the way like Dan does, again, dropping the F-bomb at him of who made you a doctor, that's a red flag to me. That's immediately call the state board and moving it up, up the ladder. I've had that happen with dosing of other prescriptions that I know were much, much worse. I think I might have talked about this podcast before, but I've had it where prescribers are giving other psychiatric medicines, whether it be Adderall, Sertraline I've seen, which isn't even a controlled substance, or Zolpidem, in doses that don't fall in any sort of range that has a therapeutic value. It, usually it's much higher. And when you call them out on that, 
I've had that happen before, in which case I politely refuse. I don't care if they say other pharmacists do it or, hey, this guy did it one time. I always make sure that I do what I can to protect the patients to the best of the ability. And I think that's one thing we have to remember here is just because it's happened in the past doesn't mean it's right. And I can see where that spirals out of control with the Oxycontin case and Dan's case here was because, hey, you filled my prescription before, now I need it now. Next person comes in, you fill it. Now you found out that you know they might be diverting or it's something you saw from the same prescriber. Hey, you filled it last time, then you fill it again, now you have two. And then it, just, it keeps going from there to there and building and building and building. So I think that's a key thing to think about is make sure that you're standing up for what you know is right and using your best pharmacological knowledge and your best patient assessment knowledge to make sure that, hey, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I believe to be the case, here's what I know, and kind of putting all those in there to make sure that you're raising this so that we can get people like Dr. Clegg off the street. Again, I can't say enough that she did. I don't feel that she got what she deserved at all. In fact, I haven't seen, heard one of my pharmacy friends say that she got what she deserved, which kind of makes me feel like I'm not alone in this. It is our duty as pharmacists to protect our patients from prescribers like them because they're only causing them harm, grief, and making their lives worse rather than improving their health and overall well-being. All right, number seven. I'm glad they brought up that it's not Oxycontin alone. This could be at least a whole nother episode, I feel like, on just benzodiazepines and drugs like Soma. But they brought up the combination or the holy trinity that is Soma, Xanax, or another benzodiazepine, and opioid or Oxycontin. Obviously, the opioids are the elephant in the room since we're seeing massive overdoses on those, and it's easier to overdose on those. But the other ones don't help anything either and just feed to the addiction. And it sometimes can, they can help with some of the symptoms of overdosing or some, some of the symptoms of taking too much or withdrawal symptoms. But when taken together, it just really makes that high worse and helps feed the addiction that those people are chasing for whatever their reason is. Eight, the one thing I'm surprised of was that Dan was able to record his conversations. I guess there was no patient information released on some of those tapes, but at the same time, I'm just really surprised that he was able to do that and that they were able to put that in the show without it going to court and being public knowledge or something like that. I I guess it's not a HIPAA issue. I'm just surprised by that. I know if you did that in any of the other chain pharmacies, that would be a huge point of contention. Also, in certain states, you do have to let someone know they're being recorded, which I know a lot of phone systems do, that, hey, this call might be recorded for quality purposes or what have you. But I was a little confused or a little put off by, I guess, the way it was recorded I'm going to assume that he was in the right and that everything he did was on the up and up, but I know in certain states this might not exactly be legal, so I want to call that out something that I don't think he was wrong, but at the same time, I just that's something that needs to be watched out for. Number nine, I really hope that this opens up people's eyes to what, we, to what we do as pharmacists and why we do it. We're not just doing this because we, quote unquote, have a God complex or because we want to exert power. We're doing this because it's part of our job to make sure we're taking care of people. And sometimes not even people, but their communities and the interest in the communities if we have a prescriber like Dr. Cleggett in this case. This is essentially the backbone of why we have right to refuse as pharmacists in most, if not all, states. We do our due diligence. We do what we can. And we have the right as a healthcare professional to refuse, no matter if it was filled at our pharmacy before, or another pharmacist said it was okay, or if our boss even says it's okay, we have the right to refuse to fill a prescription because of our professional knowledge and our expertise in the field. I think that's key, and we have to be very careful we don't overabuse that. There's been a lot of debate over pharmacists possibly losing this right because they wouldn't fill misoprostol for somebody who was going to either have an abortion or was going to have some sort of procedure done that they felt violated the quote-unquote right to life that they believed in. I, I feel like that might be a bridge too far to really argue all the time 
But at the same point, it's a slippery road. I feel that if we aren't given the right to refuse, we could see more prescribers like Dr. Cleggett pop up when it comes to drugs of abuse because we no longer have that right to deny what they are prescribing based off what we know as the pharmacology experts in healthcare. So those are my, my nine thoughts, if you will. It's a little bit longer than that, but my nine general thoughts on The Pharmacist through Netflix. I encourage everybody to go watch it. If you made it this far and haven't watched it, I probably ruined a good chunk of it for you, but don't worry. There's still plenty of other stuff. There's some earlier episodes where they described how Dan's son was murdered and some drama around that that didn't really apply to pharmacy for me, but I thought was pretty interesting of how it motivated him. I think that this really paints pharmacists in a good light. I really do think that Dan is a hero here. And you can see in, in his face just how it tore him up every step of the way to see this. You could also see in Dr. Cleggett's face that she had no remorse, and hence why I think she got off way too light. I, I think Dan should really be a hero amongst pharmacists. I would love to see him honored at either APHA or any of those other pharmacy conventions as somebody who stands up for the right thing and helps fight the good fight and paint pharmacists in the good light that he does by, by working with Netflix to make this documentary. I hope he works with them again and maybe make something that's a little more based off the opioid crisis overall in, the, in this country. I think that's a whole whole nother miniseries of something along these lines, but it could really spin off this very well. I don't know if you call it the pharmacists or what you call that, but it's been told many times, but I still think that we can't get that message out there enough of what we've done as pharmacists to try and combat this, even though it still got as bad as it did and still is out there a huge issue. I think that we need to do what we can to help show that, hey, we are trying to do this. This is why we have certain things in place. And this is why we need things like provider status so we can get paid for de-prescribing prescriptions, getting paid for refusing to fill prescriptions like this, and helping keep drugs like this off the streets. Just the being paid to refuse to fill could have caused Dan's boss in this case to back him up better. And then maybe this wouldn't have happened in his area as much. Who knows? Hindsight's always twenty twenty. But I do feel that in this case, it could have made a big difference if pharmacists had provider status and were able to bill for things like deprescribing or like not filling prescriptions because it's in the best interest of that patient. Again, I'd love to see more work in this area. I really feel like Netflix nailed down the park with this one. So minor tweaks would have made it probably a 10 for me. I would definitely give it a solid 9 out of 10, though. If I was going to go rate it IMDb, which I encourage everyone to do, again, imdb.com is the best place to rate this show for the pharmacists on Netflix. For us, thanks for listening. The best thing you can do for me to help kind of get the message of pharmacy and what we try and fight for here out is to go rate us on any of your local podcast platforms, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, what have you. Like us, rate us, subscribe to us. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. <laughs>